thank you so much for that um, introduction. Because I mean, we're we're living in complex times, and so we have to really unpack these things um, carefully. And you know, at the beginning of the conversation, I said for me, I feel like it's really palpable. Like right now, this feels not simply theoretical, but um, the times we're living in seem to necessitate, and it's catalyzing uh, this fourth turning. I feel like we're we're in it. I don't know exactly where we're at in that process, but I I've. I've witnessed uh, sanghas and teachers and practitioners starting to shift around some of these things that you've brought up. And a couple of areas in particular is one, uh, the meta crises that we're experiencing in the world um, politically, globally, seem to um, are really heating up everybody um, in, in as practitioners and teachers and sanghas to say, how the hell do we practice uh, uh, relative to these crises going on? So why do we practice and how are we practicing relative to all, all of the crises? And the other is the Sangha, which of course is related to that. And just in the last uh, month, literally the last month, two well-known Buddhist teachers have had um, scandals come out and community breakdowns um, in really significant ways. And so it's you know, like how we organize our spiritual communities, how we organize and practice together seems to be changing and, and, and um, again, influencing the need for a fourth turning. So I'm kind of curious uh, to hear a little bit more on your thoughts about how this fourth turning relates to both of those, to, to meta crises and uh, global crises, and also to how we're practicing. And I wanted to share one quote that I feel is relevant to that. Um, because uh, I mentioned the Sangha, and I think we had a quote, I don't know where this is from, but you said the new Buddha is not going to be the Sangha, but the unification of the Buddha, Sangha, and Dharma in a single ongoing non-dual awareness and awakening. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Um, because it seems like we are changing how we practice. For example, we're not – it seems like a lot, of, a lot of us know that these areas are important, but they don't necessarily mingle together. You know, uh, we, we take care of politics over here, and we take care of waking up over here. But that even that separation um, is, is not getting it done. It seems it's not able to respond to the world strongly enough. We have to have these things uh, be integral to integrate. Um, so, for example, there are being practices innovated where we're taking care of cleaning up and waking up at the same time. Um, and also, we're not practicing as individuals, uh, strictly as individuals. How do we practicing together in a practice of uh, awakening, in practices of cleaning up? So right. there are a few thoughts that I've been having. Yeah, sure. Um, well, let me, <clears throat> because um, I'm going to make the assumption that um, more of your listeners are relatively familiar with waking up yes. than they are with growing up. And so let me give just one or two more very brief details uh, about growing up itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'll talk about how, these all um, tend to interact, or at least should be interacting yeah. into this world, particularly the kind of crisis that we're going through. But if, if you, um, in over a hundred developmental models that I looked at, um, some of them, the, the actual number of stages that each of them gave tended to vary quite a bit. So some of the simpler models would give maybe just four or five stages. Um, some would give uh, 15, 16, 18. The most common number of overall stages of growing up, on average, was between around six to eight major stages of growing up. And I think on balance, it's around six to eight is sort of the most useful maps to use of this uh, uh, growing up process. But some of the simple ones, the four stage ones, for example, it doesn't mean they're incorrect. 
they're just giving much broader sort of swatches of the overall rainbow. And they're treating just sort of four major segments. And I'll give you a very quick example of one of those so people can see how important it is since these stages are what will be interpreting any experience, including a waking up experience. And that is one of the people that actually um, has done research on these sort of more simplified four stages is the feminist icon, Carol Gilligan, who wrote a book called In a Different Voice, where she was one of the first to point out that the male and female, masculine and feminine, tended to interpret uh, things like morality in slightly different ways. It was important to realize that they went through the same major stages of development, but they did so in a different voice. So the stages of development for her were selfish, which the person cares, as it says, just for themselves. We often call that egocentric. Then the next stage, Gilligan called care, because the person is extending care and compassion from just themselves to a larger group. And it tends to be a kind of group identity. So it could be your clan or your tribe or even your nation or even your religion or your political party. But that's what she called care. We often also call that ethnocentric. And I mentioned that term earlier. Um, ethnocentric means just that. In, in a good sense, it means you've expanded your identity from just your own egocentric, selfish stance to now you don't care just for yourself anymore. Now you care for a whole group or a couple of groups, but now you've expanded your identity. So that's an ethnocentric expansion. But it's also ethnocentric in a derogatory sense, meaning that since you human beings can't go from just identifying with just themselves to identifying with all 7 billion people all at once. So we have to do it through a couple of intermediate steps, getting a little bit bigger, a little more whole each time, which is what development does. Um, so ethnocentric is also derogatory in the sense that most really prejudiced forms of thinking come from or have a foot in these ethnocentric stages of development. So racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, you name it ethnocentric it's okay with some ethnocentric group somewhere right. thinks that more or less fine <laughs> that's why there's still slavery at ethnocentric stages of development and in Gebsich's term magic tended to be egocentric mythic tended to be ethnocentric and then when you get to the next major stage which we described as sort of starting with the western enlightenment um, was rational stage and that was no longer ethnocentric what the philosophers of the enlightenment started doing is they would look at let's say catholicism in europe in the middle ages for example and if you if you were a good catholic and a male then you had rights and when you died and went to heaven you're going to sit on the right hand of god and all good church believing christians are going to be up there with you and with all the other boring people in the world, <laughs> and all of the bad people that are having a lot of fun, they're all going to be in hell. Right. But that's why there was slavery. And since the major forms of waking up 
happened to come into existence at that time, even though some of his practitioners would push in the little higher stages of growing up, the cultures at large remained mythic, ethnocentric, and so they had slavery, pretty much all of them. Then when you get the emergence of this rational stage, and it just means being reasonable and not being mythic as much in terms of your explanatory types of thinking. And so the ethics that developed from the Enlightenment philosophers were world-centric. So here you didn't have rights just if you were a Christian. And if you're a Buddhist, you're going to burn in hell forever. Rather, with world-centric morality, all people are treated fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. That's what marked the type of morality that came out of the Western Enlightenment. And even though the original group of people that were sort of in charge of culture at that time were indeed white, able-bodied, heteronormative, cisgendered European males, and also usually had to be property. Nonetheless, those principles weren't confined to just that group. Those principles applied to all human beings. And so they kept getting applied to more and more and more people. It got more and more whole. So after being just initially applied to white males, Hmm. then it got applied to black males, then it got applied to all women, then it got applied to all LGBTQ people, and now it's going to apply to trans. Hmm. So it's just a, a, a complete increase. And again, the goal is an attempt to treat all people fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or religious creed. That was a wildly new notion. Mm-hmm. And we said again that even if you if you were like a fundamentalist Christian and you did have a waking up experience and you were ethnocentric, as you said, that's possible. Mm-hmm. And again, of the 60% of the people that have had these kinds of waking up experiences, a good number of them are still at their own ethno centric stages. And even though that's a direct experience of oneness, oneness with the entire universe and everybody in it, you'll tend to then think, again, if you're fundamentalist, you actually identify with this ethnocentric level, you'll tend to think anybody can have that experience, but only if they accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Um, Or if you're a Muslim, oh, anybody can have that experience, but you have to acknowledge Allah and Muhammad as his one and only prophet and so on. So these stages still had slavery because it was only this group has rights. But with the world-centric stages of development, all human beings are treated fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or religious creed. The two main stages there include the rational world-centric stage, modern, and the postmodern world-centric stage. And then the highest stages is integrated. And at those stages, you become aware of all the previous stages, and you realize that every human being is born at square one, which is true, and has to go through that whole spectrum in order to get to those higher, more inclusive, and more whole stages. You're not born with an integral awareness at six months. It's not there. You're in an archaic stage, and you have to go through a mat, and that's very um, very narcissistic, very egocentric. And then you have to go through magic and mythic 
to ethnocentric stages and then into rational stages, usually emerge somewhere in adolescence. And then you'd be open to world-centric, very idealistic orientation. Of course, that's what teenagers tend to go through. If you keep developing, you'll develop into a postmodern version of that. And by the way, the modern stage and the postmodern stage, they're both world-centric. But otherwise, like most of those early stages, they don't like each other. And one of the things that's happened to the liberal party is it started at a rational world-centric stage. And then as this new postmodern world-centric stage emerged, which is only during the 1960s, by the way, then about half of people on the left moved up into those new postmodern stages. And where the original world-centric valued things like individual freedom and individual liberty and wanted equal opportunity, this new postmodern version didn't so much want freedom as it wanted straightforward equality. Hmm. It didn't believe in individual rights. It believed in social rights or social justice. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't even like this new postmodern stage, doesn't even like free speech. Although the original left um, orientation believes in free speech profoundly. Mm. So we're seeing this kind of uh, problem occurring right there. And that's a problem that we can't address because we don't actually know the source of where that conflict is coming from because nobody pays attention to these interior realities. Mm. If you go to a typical college professor, anywhere in the Western world, and say, for example, hey, buddy, um, give me uh, a little rundown of the major stages of development that all human beings go through. They'll look at you like you're out of your mind. They have absolutely no idea what you're mm -hmm. talking about. Mm -hmm. If you try, so that's so much for growing up, try waking up. Try saying, hey, explain enlightenment, explain awakening to me, explain moksha. What does that mean? But also, most of them, they might have heard of something called enlightenment. They have no bloody idea what it means. And if they do, they'll almost certainly think it's delusional. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're one with everything. Well, that's just your imagination. That's a hallucination. You're delusional. So this is, this is a real problem. And I'll just finish by saying that the higher stages, the integrated integral stages, are ones that actually do start to take this kind of stuff into account. Now, if you look historically, at the major eras that most anthropologists recognize, and that again, Gibson would call archaic era, a magic era, a mythic era, a rational age of reason um, era, what happens is that, um, and again, at any, even if you're at, like, let's say, a rational, world centric culture, you're still born at square one. You're still born at archaic, and you have to go through magic, you have to go through mythic in order to get to rational and pluralistic. And by the way, you will almost certainly be creating shadow elements at every one of those stages. So one of the things that Freud particularly discovered is that most, most adult neuroses were created in childhood. Mm. Because in childhood, you just have archaic worldviews and magic worldviews and some mythic. And those, when they get split off as shadow elements, then you retain these little pockets of superstitious magic in your unconscious. Or you have these weird mythic beliefs, like I'm rotten, I'm no good. If I do this, um, 
my parents will kill me or whatever the myth is that's dominating your awareness. And so those are all become issues. One, when about 10% of the population reaches one of these major stages, then there's a kind of tipping point. And so, for example, when about 10% of the population, which is previously mythic, mythic, literal, middle ages, for example, when about 10% of the population reach that actual stage of reason, of formal operational cognition, of rationality, then there was a tipping point, and those values just sort of permeated the culture. People didn't actually move up to that rational world-centric stage, but they became more open to those ideas. That's why, among other things, slavery could actually be outlawed at that point, because people were open to that. They hadn't really considered it previously. And then in 1960s, as the percent of the population at the next postmodern stage reached about 10%, which was by around the early 1970s, then we had a tipping point, and it really was the, the, the beginning of the postmodern era in the, in the Western world. Right now, we have about 5% of the population at these integral stages. So we're looking for, again, about 10% to hit those stages. And then we expect to see another tipping point, And we expect to see unifying, synthesizing, systemic, integrated, mm. holistic ideas just sort of permeate the culture a little bit more. Mm. Right now, pretty much everybody agrees we have one of the most polarized cultures in our history, yep. at least since the Civil War. And it's just getting worse. And, and even though there are indeed some indications that in some areas things are getting better, one of the things that's going to have to happen is that we're going to have to start recognizing the realities that are actually causing some of this polarization. We don't know what to do about it right now because, again, most people have no bloody idea about growing up and the stages of development that human beings have to go through. Mm -hmm. What you find on college campuses are protesters just screaming at the top of their voice, and so much so they'll shut down anybody that they think disagrees with them. Mm. And so particularly if they see anything that sounds like a conservative view, well, they will automatically, because there's a little grain of truth here, mm. original conservatives, traditionalists, do sort of look back, and they do feel that we need to hold on to social institutions that we already have and that have worked for us for hundreds of years. And that does include certain ethnocentric orientations. Mm -hmm. Not all conservatives adopt those, but most people that call themselves conservative do are much more open to what we would call traditional values. And those are ones that did come from, from these mythic ethnocentric stages of development. So, but what the college protesters are doing is they're using their world-centric orientation to yell at ethnocentric orientations. Mm. That's what they're protesting. 
What they don't do, they have no conception of the stages of development that get people to these different types of values. So they're clear that they can't stand these ethnocentric traditional thinkers, Mm -hmm. but they don't have a clue how to actually get them up to world-centric stages because they don't have a clue about growing up in general. Mm. And they're not going to get it from any religion anywhere in the world because, as we said, no religion knows anything about it. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. If you look worldwide, at the population worldwide, the percentage of the population at ethnocentric or lower stages of development is between around 60 to 70 percent. That means they're prejudiced. It's it's a bigoted population, and not because they have a choice. It's not that they have a chance to to choose world-centered morals, and then they malevolently choose not to. No, no, almost all of them are on the way up. So they've actually come from selfish, egocentric stages into a higher care stage. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not the highest stage, the world-centric stage, which Carol Gilliam calls not care, but universal care. Because that, again, is not just ethnocentric, that's world-centric. That's where you extend your morals to a universal embrace so that you treat all people fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. Clearly, what the world needs now is a few more people at universal, holistic, world-centric moral stages of development. Even in something like global warming. One of the real problems with global warming is that we have a fair, or climate change, is that we have a fair number of people that usually call climate deniers, and they simply deny that it's a, a major problem. I think the science on this is pretty straightforward. It's a big problem. But one of the difficulties is that at ethnocentric stages and lower, an individual can't really even form an accurate concept of a universal reality, of a global reality. For many of these climate deniers, it's not that they see the evidence and then deny it. It's that they can't conceive a global reality in the first place. It doesn't make sense to them. They look out in their backyard. They don't see it on fire or anything like that. So it's not a problem. Mm. And so if you've got 60 to 70 percent of the worldwide population that can't even grasp the concept, that's a problem. Mm. And The real source of the problem is not that they're at that stage, but it's that most of our authorities and experts in every field we look have no conception of growing up. They have no conception of how to actually get people from ethnocentric into world-centric statehood. And they don't. They certainly don't have any concept of how to help them awaken or, or wake up. But we've seen that that really does have to be combined with growing up. So you ask about some, I think, sort of some examples of how we would engage these two. Yeah. Um, People that uh, are practicing some sort of 
meditative or contemplative um, yogic practice um, will be fairly familiar with um, the items I'm going to say. And I'll just do this part very briefly. It's a much it's a very complex topic. And I mean, you could do things like go through the whole nine yanas of, of Tibetan Buddhism. Right. Um, but if you look, one of the, we talked about waking up involving states of consciousness that are all immediately aware to us, so they can enter our awareness, the first person realities. Um, a very common model um, that several meditative traditions use. Um, this model is used, for example, by Vedanta Hinduism. It's also used by Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, you can find large aspects of it in the Neoplatonic tradition in the West. But it's just a simple list of five major states of, of consciousness. And there are three relative states and then two ultimate states. And the relative states are often known simply by the terms gross, subtle, and causal. And there are many examples of both of those, but the typical examples often given by, by all of these models is a gross state is our typical waking state, mm-hmm. egoic waking state. And then a subtle state is like a dream state. And then a causal state is like deep, dreamless sleep. So it's starting to get just vast, formless awareness. Mm-hmm. And then those are all called relative because they all come into being, they last a while, then they go out of existence and the next state comes in and so on. And then the two ultimate states are states that are ever present. They're always present whether we realize it or not. And one is called Turiya in Sanskrit. And it's a very unimaginative term. It literally just means the fourth. And it's called the fourth because there are three states before They're gross, subtle, causal. That's one, two, three. So then this really imaginative person said, well, let's call this one the fourth. So anyway, that's what Turi is. But what Turi means, it's just pure awareness. It's not any content of awareness. So it's just a pure consciousness without any object. Now, of course, it's aware of objects and all of manifestation arising. But it's just a pure witness. It's a pure awareness and and not anything that's arising in that awareness. And then the fifth state is called Turiyaktita, well, in Sanskrit. And Turiyaktita just means beyond Turiya. And what that is, is even though Turiya is just this pure witnessing awareness, Zen Master Shibayama calls it absolute subjectivity. Well, even in with Kriyatita, that's the pure non-dual unity state. So even the pure witness, pure absolute subjectivity collapses into everything witnessed. And subject and object become one non-dual reality. And that's there are a lot of little gradations in all of this, but that's taken to essentially be the, um, the ultimate state. Of, of consciousness. Now, one of the, there are two different, broadly different type of practices that are used to get into Turiya and then into Turiyatita. So a very common one with Turiya is in Sanskrit, it's just called Mete Mete. 
It means not this, not that. So if you're introducing this concept to a person, you might do something like say, okay, write down on a list um, just who you are. Just describe yourself. Just write down everything you can think of that specifically applies to you. Mm-hmm. The person might write, okay, well, I'm this, I'm, I'm this old, uh, I'm this tall, I weigh this much, I'm this race, I'm this gender, uh, I was born so-and-so, I have this many years of education, I'm in a relationship, um, I, you know, I have this kind of car, I like these kinds of movies and these kinds of books, whatever. They'll make just a whole list of everything that they can see mm. about themselves. Mm. These are all seen selves. So they've looked with them, they've seen these things, they've written them all down. And you need to sort of point out that, okay, that's fine. Those are all things that you can see. But how about the seer itself? Show me that. What's the actual seer? It's not anything you can see. That's just going to be another object. Show me this absolute subjectivity. Show me this pure witness. Because this pure witness, this pure awareness, isn't any content of awareness. So this pure awareness will go, I'm not this, I'm not that. So it will say, I see that mountain, I'm not that mountain. Mm -hmm. I have sensations. I'm not those sensations. I have feelings. I'm not those feelings. I have thoughts. I'm not those thoughts. I'm the pure, unqualifiable witness of all of that. And that witness isn't even in my body because my witness will see everything interior. It will see all my thoughts and images and feelings. It will see those as objects and it will see everything outside of itself as objects too. It'll see the mountain. It'll see the clouds. It'll see the computer screen. And it's none of those. And it literally is none of those. It's mete, mete. And that's why in virtually all schools of mysticism, you'll find, in a sense, two different branches. One is they'll tell you what ultimate reality or Godhead or Buddha nature or Brahman, they'll tell you what it's like. And here they'll give it metaphor qualities. So they'll say something like um, God is love or God ultimate is Satchitananda. It's being consciousness bliss. In Christian mysticism, this is called a cataphatic mode of knowing. And in Vedanta, for example, Brahman has two aspects. One's called Saguna, and one's called Nirguna. And Saguna means with qualities. So again, Saguna would be like Satchit Ananda, or the good, the true, and the beautiful, or love, or whatever qualities you want to metaphorically give, uh, give the absolute. But then there's also Nirguna Brahman, and N-I-R means without. And without qualities means it's literally just unqualifiable. It's just anything you can say about it is wrong. And so if you pick, and this is called apathetic. If you pick up, for example, the cloud of unknown, a famous Christian mystical text of this nete, nete, also called via negativa, you'll see just page after page of the purported author, St. Dionysius, saying things like, God is not love. God is not light. God is not being, God is not compassion, God is not, I mean, it's just list after list after list of mete, mete, mete. Mm -hmm. 
because that is the fundamental, unqualifiable ground of your own existence. And that's what Turiya is, is finding that pure, pure being that can't be objectified. And that brings with it an enormous sense of freedom. Because when you're not identified with any of this, well, it's technically, if you really push that state, you get into that Narod state, where the early the Theravada Buddhist monks would get into that state and be set on fire. Mm-hmm. Because they're not identified with anything that's arising. So one of the main practices that you'll use, even when you start meditating, You'll be told to just sit and just give awareness to everything that's arising, non-judgmentally. Just be aware of thoughts, be aware of sensations, be aware of your breath coming in, coming out. And what you're doing by making those objects is you're disidentified with it. Mm. So nete, nete is one of the major types of practices for waking up. And then you move from turiya to turiya because for the major sort of feeling of Turiya, or Nete Nete, is a sense of freedom. And the joy and happiness, even most common term in Eastern texts is Ananda, the bliss that comes from being free of all of this dukkha causing manifestation around you. You're free of that, and you can feel it. And that's a very, very profound awakening. But if you continue to push into that awareness, at some point, Zen calls it the bottom of the bucket breaks. At some point, the whole sense of there being a witness just disappears. And there's absolutely everything that's arising. And you don't see that. You are that. So you no longer see the mountain. You are the mountain. You no longer are aware of clouds. You are the clouds. You no longer feel the earth. You are the earth. And that is your fundamental, non-dual, ultimate unity state. And that's not so much a state of freedom as a state of fullness. And the major feeling there is not so much ananda or bliss. It's love. It's a loving oneness. Everything is arising. And so in that practice, what you're doing is just being aware of everything arising and you're just allowing the witness to dissolve into whatever it is that arises. That can be a fairly um, advanced state. And so it often helps to, to do just meditative, nete, nete experience first. So you've kind of disidentified with a whole lot of little small egoic personas and small self and Close you get to just that pure witness, then the easier it is to just drop that witness. So I'm not this, I'm not that, and then moving to I'm all of that. And the only reason you're not specifically this thing or that thing, the reason you're nete, nete, not just this thing or not just that thing, is because you're actually all of them. You're actually absolutely everything that's arising in the entire universe. The entire universe is arising within you. And that's your ultimate non-dual unity state. Now, I'll very quickly finish by giving you an example of what you can do in growing up. And you can see how different these developmental pathways are. This is a very famous experiment 
that was done, um, a version of which was done by Piaget. Um, and Piaget, by the way, who's probably the most famous developmental psychologist of the 20th century, he actually, when James Mark Baldwin, the guy I pointed out, actually discovered this whole growing up development, when he retired uh, from Cambridge, he taught in Paris. And they had a lot of fairly famous students over there. One of them was a young Swiss student named Jean Piaget. And Piaget got an enormous amount of his ideas from James Mark Baldwin. And then Piaget went on to really, really cause an enormous impact. But here's one of the simple experiments that he did. Uh, and this is why his work became so influential at one point. When a young child is born, it literally can't do what psychologists call take the role of other. And here's a simple example of that. You take, I've used this example a lot, but it's, it's a really great simple example. You take a ball, a ball colored red on one side and green on the other. And you take a young child, a couple of years old, um, and you put the ball between you and the child. And you turn it several times so it can see, okay, red on one side, green on the other, got it. So then put it so the red side is facing the child and the green side is facing you. And then ask the child, what color do you see? And the child will say red. And then say, okay, what color do I see? And the child will say red. In other words, the child has no idea that you have a different perspective that you are seeing the world differently from it. It's truly still at a very egocentric, very selfish, narcissistic stage, so much so it can't even understand that other people see the world differently. Child at that early stage thinks that what it sees is what everybody sees, and that's it. Now, you wait till the child is five, six, seven, do the same experiment. Put the red side towards the child, green side towards you. Ask the child, what color do you see? They'll say red. Say, what color do I see? They'll say green. They get it. They can put themselves in your viewpoint, take your viewpoint, and see what you are seeing. So we'll often say things like, you know, before you get mad at somebody, walk a mile in their shoes, or those kinds of things. And it does mean capacity to take perspectives to literally put mm -hmm. yourself in the role of another person and attempt to see what they're seeing so this is something that you're doing in a sense in samsara you're working with manifest realm it's a relative realm but you see that there are greater and lesser degrees of wholeness you can be identified with just your own little isolated narcissistic self or you can expand that egocentric to ethnocentric and then you'll be able to see that there are other people to see the way you do. And you'll tend to identify with that whole group. You tend to be very conformist with that group. But at least you're seeing that there are other perspectives. Mm. And then when you get to the next stage and you go world-centric, now you can develop a conception of treating all human beings fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. So this involves an actual practice of taking perspectives. So one of the simple practices here is... Um, and let me just preface this by saying a lot of major developmentalists, I said, 
that on average, they have about six to eight major stages or levels or structures of development. Some of them actually define a major stage as adding a new perspective. So with these, and this has been measured up to a seventh person perspective. So of these six to eight stages, stage one is just a first person perspective, just myself. Stage two is a second person. Second person means the person being spoken to. So that means I'd be if I was talking to you, you're second person. Mm-hmm. At this stage, I can take your point of view. I can see that you're looking at the green side of the ball and I'm looking at the red side. And stage three has a third person perspective. And that means you can actually start doing hypothetical deductive reasoning. So rationality will start to emerge there. And then as you go on up in fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, each of those is adding a new perspective. And we have empirical evidence all the way up to a seven-person perspective. And by the way, you can have a waking up experience at almost every one of those stages of growing up. And you'll have no idea that's happening. You'll just think that comes to the territory of waking up. So that's why Buddhist monasteries had slaves and Christian monasteries had slaves. Uh, Sufis trafficked in millions of slaves, and it's horrifying. But that's why we have to add growing up with waking up. So of, of the items that this world in crisis needs, certainly a general waking up orientation would be central because that's the only that's the only claim that has ever been made by human beings as being a way to find a literal ultimate truth. Science has never claimed that. Art never claimed that. But the passive waking up claim you are getting ultimate truth here. And Jordan Peterson is right. <laughs> the existence of this absolute consciousness is not disputable. So stop bloody disputing it. <laughs> that needs to go down. We also, though, we need to be interpreting that experience from at least a world-centric stage of growing up and preferably an integrated stage of growing up. And we need to keep an eye on the shadow elements because an enormous amount of human conflict is due not just to the fact that people are coming from lower stages of growing up and not just because they haven't had a single hint of waking up, but because they're loaded with shadow material, they're projecting it onto other people, they're hating other people for their own shadow material that they put on them. And that is a disaster. And clearly, each of those is giving us a greater degree of real wholeness. So certainly, waking up gives us an ultimate wholeness. It's a unity of the Unmanifest, an entire manifest universe, all emptiness and all form, infinite and finite. That's a big whole. Mm. But also growing up gives you increasing stages of wholeness. You go from a very narrow egocentric stance to a more expanded ethnocentric stance to a world-centric universal stance. And then one that integrates all of those. That's a huge wholeness in the relative realm. And with shadow elements, you go from a broken psyche and a bunch of repressed 
shadow material to a reunited, reintegrated, whole psyche where you're not taking aspects of your own self and disowning them, projecting them on others, and then hating others simply because you're hating your own shadow. Mm. And so these are all absolutely crucial aspects. First of all, human beings just being able to get along with each other, but also in terms of just our own self-understanding and our understanding of reality. So all of these things really need to be taken into account. So the little practice for growing up, take the role of other. That literally, you can just imagine a two ball, anytime you're talking to somebody, practice trying to literally view the world through their eyes. Now, we tend to do that in any event, but just as, as a direct practice, yeah. exercising that muscle, because each stage of development is an increase in perspective, then as you continue to exercise that muscle of just taking the role of other at whatever stage you're at, that's going to help you move to the next higher stage. Mm. So that's a very good practice um, for that. So Wonderful. Ken, thank you so much for this. Um, I know we've been uh, going for a long time, so I don't want to keep you uh, keep you on here much longer. But uh, this was a great conversation, and I, like I said, I, it's very up and relevant to me, and I think to a lot of our listeners. And maybe we could do a part two at some point, uh, whether on here or um, even over on Integral Life with uh, our good friend Corey. Um, we could do something over there and uh, continue the conversation. So. Yeah, thank you. I'm really grateful uh, for you and your work and for taking the time today. You bet, my friend. Take care, Ron. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.